You're listening to Cannabis Health Radio. Here are your hosts, Ian Jessup and Corey Yelland. Welcome to another episode of Cannabis Health Radio. I'm Ian Jessup. And I'm Corey Yelland. Before we get to our guest today, I want to say thank you to all the people around the world who listen to our podcasts. And, Corey, our audience is growing uh, weekly, and that's good news. And we'd like to thank people. And if you'd like to thank us, you can go to our Facebook page and uh, like us. Same with Twitter. And also, one of the things we don't talk about much, Corey, is iTunes. Right. And if people go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, uh, we'll go up in the pecking order. And we want to be top pecker. We want to be top (laughs) (laughs) pecker. Speak for yourself. (laughs) Oh, Ian, I know you do. (laughs) Yes. And how else can people thank us, Corey? Well, you know, you can always go to CannabisHealthRadio.com and make a contribution there. And if you can keep us up and running, that would be awesome. Now let's get to our guest. In 2004, our guest today had what doctors described as a significant stroke, and her family was told that she would likely wouldn't live. But if she did, she would be institutionalized for the rest of her life. Of course, that didn't happen. Joining us today to tell her remarkable story of recovery is Ellen Durkee from Nova Scotia, Canada. Ellen, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you for having me, Ian. For someone who is supposed to be institutionalized, uh, you have made just a remarkable dramatic recovery. Now, when you had your aneurysm in 2004, followed by your significant stroke, what do you remember about it? Uh, I remember the queen being in a room down the hall and her guards walking up and down and keeping me awake. I, isn't that crazy? But I actually remember it like it was real. And I would tell people, the queen is driving me crazy. <laughs> They're keeping me awake. That is so, bizarre. Yeah, I don't remember a lot. I remember, you know, seconds of things and uh, sounds. I remember a few sounds and some smells, but I don't really remember much. Were there any symptoms that you had prior to your aneurysm that uh, you look back at now and think, oh, okay, maybe that was the start of it? Um, I've been having migraines for probably 15 years or so before this happened, and they say they don't know if that's related to it or not. They don't expect so because the migraines didn't stop afterwards. Um, The day that it happened, I took my daughter to a basketball game, so I was at the high school, by chance, I happened to be an emergency medical responder with the local fire department, and I was on call that day, so I had my radio with me. And apparently I passed out. I don't remember passing out, but I passed out in my seat and woke up, and there was a nurse, a friend, who was with me, and they had called an ambulance. And because it was just a fainting, they thought it wasn't a lights and sirens call, so there was no big rush to get there. So I got on my emergency radio and called my captain, and uh, they sent the emergency squad. So it was quite a thing for the fire department that, you know, one of their members had their own, called themselves in. <laughs> and uh, from there to the hospital. And I, I don't, after, I don't remember the ambulance 
fellows getting there. I remember calling it in, and then that's it for about a month, a month and a half. I slept completely through Hurricane Juan, if you remember that. Mm-hmm. Woke up to, I guess there were a few snowdrifts left, but I missed the worst of that. Ellen, when you called in, were you aware that something was really wrong? I had an idea, just only because I didn't remember passing out, and I was in a different room. They had taken me into the weight room where they have mats on the floor and had me lay down. And for some reason, I had brought my radio with me. And uh, I thought, something's not right, and I really should have, you know, somebody here as quick as possible. So I called my tweet team, and they were, oh, probably three minutes, and, and the first of them arrived. Just for clarification, was that your aneurysm, or was that your stroke? That was the aneurysm. That was, that was the was, aneurysm. When did yeah. the stroke happen? It was ten days later. They, uh, they got, it was my first day, actually, out of bed. And until that point, I had been tied in bed because I was I was pretty aggressive, I think, with people, and uh, they, and I wanted to escape, of course, and I, I really was a bit of a, a loopy nutcase, and so they had me sitting in my chair. They didn't have me tied in, and I was left in the room alone. My mother had just left and had told the nurse that she was leaving, and uh, the nurse said okay. And the nurse actually was in the room at the time. And uh, then the nurse left. I was alone. I apparently stood up to go to the bathroom and fell down. And within three hours, had a stroke. Do you remember being aggressive? No, no, not at all. Mm. Now, what did the stroke do to your right eye? They call it blowing the pupil, and it's the, the the black center part of my eye went right out to the white, so it was kind of, my eye looked a little bit wonky. It didn't affect my vision that much, but it did affect the way my eyes work. When you read, um, your eyes kind of cross, they both move, move towards the center, and I couldn't do that. I had, it took, prob- I was probably about six months of eye exercises to uh, to be able to focus in to read for more than three or four minutes before I would get a horrible headache. That must have been a pretty scary time for you. No, strangely enough, nope. it wasn't. It wasn't. And the, and the doctors at the hospital after, I you know, they give you all these neurological tests to see what you've lost, what you've retained, and all that kind of stuff. And I, other than my math, I can't add, add, subtract. I can do very simple. I can make change. But uh, on multiplication, looks like a completely different language to me. I just don't understand how that works. No, nothing really was scary except for the fact that I was, you know, almost trapped. I didn't like the fact that I couldn't get up and, and go by myself. See, I'd find that really frightening myself. So you're a better person. <laughs> you're a better person than I. I don't know. Uh, I think the doctor had asked after this would have been months later. He said, "What do you attribute your recovery?" Because you know, three percent of people actually live through it. Very, very few people actually come back. And you know, most of the people I was in the hospital with ended up being angry or depressed or all of that stuff. And I said, "The only thing I can think of is I could not imagine not getting better." So it never entered my mind that I wouldn't. And I think that I think that's pretty big. Yeah, pretty a very positive attitude then. Positive or just stupid? I don't. I don't. A bit of both. <laughs> yeah. It's really mind over matter, isn't it? Kind. 
kind of. Um, and when I got home, Mom, my husband had bought me a computer as when I was coming home. I had an old beat-up thing that would take, you know, four hours to kind of get online. And uh, they decided that a computer, because I was going to be stuck, I didn't have a driver's license because I'd had so many seizures and all that kind of stuff. So they had a new computer waiting for me, and I got on, and my husband had found a web address for a neurological website. And I got on that. They had chat rooms with, you know, every possible neurological condition that you can imagine. No one was ever in the stroke and aneurysm room, but I found a wonderful group of people in the Tourette's chat room. And uh, so I think following five and six conversations at one time and having to keep them straight in my head really did help with the thinking part, at least, of recovering. Interesting. You know, what's so remarkable from my perspective in this is that the doctor said you likely wouldn't live, and if you did, you would be institutionalized for the rest of your life. Yeah, there was a lot of damage, apparently, of the the right part of the brain where this was. I should have lost my language. I should have lost cognition of a lot of things. Um, the tests that they were giving me, they kept repeating these different kinds of word tests. They'd read a, a line of poetry, I think that I shall never see a poem, you know, that kind of stuff, and ask me to finish it. And I was able to do it. I could probably couldn't do it today, but for some reason, when I was getting the test, and they really were surprised. You know, one fellow said, uh, one neuropsychologist said, what do you do for a living? And I said, I'm a custodian at a university. And he goes, maybe you should go to university, <laughs> which I did. Oh, you did? The, ne- the next year, I went back to school. Yep. And you said that the doctor told you that only 3% of people who had what you had live through it. Live or are able to function normally afterwards because of the where, where it, it depends on where the aneurysm is and how strong it is. And uh, it's a very, very low number of people that actually live through it. Ellen, take us through what recovery was like for you in hospital. Boring. It was, uh, in the hospital was like normally, like what you'd be in a hospital. You you know, you get your meals a few times, times a day and you have a few people visit. And then when I was moved over to rehab, I spent a lot of time doing tests, um, not really learning how to walk. I could walk, but I wasn't steady, and my toes would kind of, I'd lift my foot up, but my toe would stay down, so I would trip a lot. So I kind of had to learn, you know, how to move my body. I had to practice and practice with my left arm. I still am a little bit clumsy with my, I'll carry my keys around for an hour looking for them, and they'll be in my left hand, and I just don't register that they're there. Learning to turn my head when someone was sitting on my left-hand side, if two people would visit, I would remember the person that stood on the right-hand side of the bed. I wouldn't remember the person that stood on the left. So just little tricks to keep your life normal, I guess. Yeah. And you said in the notes you sent us you had to learn to walk again. Learn how to move my feet. Yeah. I, the, I could stand and I could move my legs, but it wasn't. I certainly was not graceful. I was in a wheelchair probably for about maybe a month at the hospital and uh, that was just too slow for me and I kept going in circles because I couldn't move my left hand so or I could move it but I wasn't moving it properly so I you know start driving with my right hand and just go in circles because my left hand wasn't working you know listening to you it strikes me is that you have such a positive attitude that this wasn't going to beat you 
you were going to overcome any disability that you had. And I think your attitude was absolutely astounding. Like the doctor, like you said to the doctor, you attributed that to this isn't going to impact my life in a negative way. I just couldn't imagine not being myself. Although I, I have to say, and everyone else says, I'm really not the same person that I was beforehand. But strangely enough, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't have it not happen, other than the fact that you know my kids were you know rel- they were teenagers, and it was certainly difficult for them and for my husband. But as far as me, I didn't really, other than a bit of frustration, didn't go through that bad of a time. There were certainly people there that had bigger life changes and you know impacts on them than i did i think has it changed your perspective of life certainly has and there was no you know there was no big flash of light and like oh my god you know life is wonderful it was none of that but suddenly you know how they say you know suddenly things seem more important Mm -hmm. and it's strange i know would notice stuff i remember distinctly going out the first time i went out by myself out to my flower garden and seeing the, the bugs on the flowers before I saw the flowers. And just little, funny little things like that. Seeing babies, seeing people. I, just, I loved people. I would, you know, meet somebody and I would automatically see the good in them. And people would say, you, you're shining, you know, you're, you're glowing. You know, you just seem happy. And I, I think that I was. Maybe that's the way all of us are supposed to be, Ellen. I don't know. It would be wonderful. But, uh, and I learned it was strange the probably the biggest thing i learned about myself that was that i had been afraid of disabled people i'd worked at a at a summer camp when i was a kid with kids with uh, different disabilities and so i you know had been around disabled people before and i had a cousin who was in a wheelchair for her life but i'd always been a little bit nervous and would never walk up to someone and introduce myself to them if they were in a wheelchair but after being in a wheelchair and being in a place where you're surrounded by people in wheelchairs you suddenly realize like hey they're absolutely no more, you know, no less than we are, and certainly interesting. That was a positive thing that came out of it. Ellen, we had an inquiry on our Facebook page today from uh, an individual who wanted to know if cannabis could help with strokes. And, absolutely. And I said, we are not clinicians, but we are doing an interview with a woman who had a stroke and i suggested that she listen to this interview now tell me how you came upon cannabis uh that would have been in about 2010 um i was searching through facebook probably and came upon rick simpson's video run from the cure and uh I watched it, and then I watched it again, and then I watched it again, and I thought, there's something to this, and started researching like mad, and uh, I came across Corey and Janet Sweeney and a few other people online and listened and watched and then found MUM, the Maritimers Unite for Medical Marijuana here in Nova Scotia, and met the wonderful people that run that, found out how I could uh, get my license, got my license, and began. And it was more of a kind of an experiment with me. There wasn't that much talk from anybody about migraine treatments or or what it could do to, to rebuild brains and that kind of thing. At that time, most of the focus seemed to be on cancer. And uh, so I really had to do a lot of extra digging. And I thought I can experiment on myself. That'll be okay. I, had, I wasn't a smoker. I think when I was probably 16, I might have smoked once or twice. And 
then never did again until now. Things you don't expect to be doing when you're 56 years old. <laughs> so when you first got the cannabis, did you just smoke it or were you doing it in the form of a tincture or what exactly what did you do? No, I started right off with the oil. Um and just started very, very, very slowly. Uh, made a, made the mistake. I think maybe the third time I took it, I thought, ah, I can up this dose. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a mistake. But uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't bad. It was just you know, just a silly thing to do. So I just. It was just a drop. It was almost like what someone would take on on a maintenance dose, just barely any at all. And uh, my migraines stopped. Things I wasn't expecting to have happened. I have IBS, and that pretty much disappeared so i didn't have that anymore um my arthritis which really flared up maybe six months or so before i started on the oil um didn't go away but it was yeah i could feel it but it was only just feeling it was like oh yeah that's acting up today but it doesn't hurt i can just feel it Mm. so there were a lot a lot of little things my fingernails started growing like mad my hair started growing like crazy that you know it just it was all positives except for the fact that now I had to source or grow my own marijuana. Right. How often were you taking it, Ellen? Every night before I went to bed. It was just, I, I think a few times I did take it twice a day, but uh, I could feel it. And I, I don't like the feeling of being stoned, mm-hmm. especially when, when I'm around the house. So, uh, so I just was taking it at night. So eventually I got my dose up to... I don't know, probably three times, four times what I started with. It still isn't very much. But it works for you at that dose. But it, it works for me at that dose, or it seems to. It may work better if I took more, it's just that I haven't bothered taking more because I'm, you know, I'm satisfied with what that does. Are you La- do- in- Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to ask you, are you doing um, high THC, or have you got any CBD thrown in there? Um, it's fairly high THC. Um the very first that I started using is a was a something that someone had had around for about 20 years. They've been growing the same plant. They called it Swamp Donkey. And sadly, last year, the person that had it went on holiday and left someone else to look after his uh, seed crop, and they all died. Oh, so no. we can't we can't and that was the best that I've ever used for for my problem anyway. So I've I've experimented and I've got two or three strains that I mix together so it's not just the one strain. And I find that that works better too than just having one. You get all those different turpins and and different amounts of THC and CBD so Ellen, when you mentioned your migraines, were you experiencing migraines after your stroke? Yeah, and in fact, um they were coming more often. They weren't any any stronger, um, but they're the kind that I have. It's not chronic. I can't remember what the type is called that I have, but they they last for three four days. Um, I'm sick to my stomach. I can't see. I can't really drive. I'll have trouble speaking. It's almost like you're having a stroke at some points. Um, you don't want light. It's you know the typical migraine with that kind of stuff. But and you can't think straight. Everything's just a little bit. You know, just not right. So you're like a politician. Uh, kind of. (laughs) When you had your migraines and they were as debilitating as you mentioned, did you ever fear that maybe you were getting another stroke? I did for probably the first year or two. And uh, I go back every so often. Uh, for, uh, For the first five years, I was back every year for an angiogram. And the... They, the coils that they had put in, they seemed to be fine. 
Um, I do have another a new other aneurysm on the same spot on the other side of my skull, or other side of my brain, but it hasn't changed. It's the same size that it was back in 2004, so they're not worried about it. The coils have shifted in the one they repaired, and... I asked the doctor, so what does that mean? And he said, well, if there's, you have a choice. We can go in and repair it with more coils. We can do a surgery and clip it, or we can leave it alone. And I said, we'll leave it alone. And uh, they sent my information to specialists and clinics all around the world looking for someone else that had had this or was having the same reaction. But they've only been doing this since probably about 1999, 2000. So they don't know what the long-term things are as far as the coiling and that kind of stuff goes. So we just we wait and see. But I don't worry about it anymore. I worry about something happening and not dying, as crazy as that sounds. I don't want to be sitting in a wheelchair drooling into my lap and having someone have to tend to my knees. Ellen, what are these coils you, you refer to? They're t- little tiny threads of titanium, and they're like the spring inside of a ballpoint pen, and they put those inside. They go up through an artery and insert them into the aneurysm, and uh, it, they just fill it up, and they, over a, a period of time, they'll kind of heal into the artery and uh, keep it from exploding. Well, how do you think you would be today if you weren't taking cannabis? When the migraines are bad, when, and it's, it seems to be usually spring and fall, when we have the really quick up and downs with weather and you know pressure systems and stuff like that, I really don't function well at all. It's the barometric pressure that causes them. That seems to be the main cause. Now, there, yeah. there may be other things. There may be hormonal sometimes, too. I, cause I get them so, so often. That uh, we've, ne- you know, I've kept diaries of food and all that kind of stuff, but we can't really pin it down to anything at all. But uh, yeah, I, ju- I can't plan things. I can't say yes, I'll be there next Tuesday, or yes, I'll look after the grandchildren on the weekend. You know, I, I can't do that. So I'm just sort of, you know, day to day. If I'm good when I wake up, then I can do something. If I'm not, then I can't. So it's a disability in a way, but it's, it's a different. It's, it's one of those neurological things. You can't see it, so. No one else can see it. Well, you have an extremely positive attitude for someone who has uh, these issues. I know migraines are just a horrible thing to experience. In talking to people who have migraines, they're just, I mean, you just want to lock yourself in a dark room and, uh, and hear no noise and just be quiet for as long as it takes for the migraine to dissipate. Yeah. Yeah, you you at that you know if your house was to catch on fire it would be okay <laughs> if it was quick it real nothing nothing else can enter that when you're when it's really bad the rest of the world doesn't doesn't really exist it's kind of just you trying to breathe through the the headaches and for four days it, you know it's tiring you get a little bit frustrated and tired. Besides taking the oil, do you ever smoke at all or take edibles or tinctures? Um, I've tried edibles. I was down to the cannabis cup and to the emerald cup, and I did try a couple of things at those. And they're they're okay, but they don't work as quickly. It takes about an hour or a little bit better for, for an edible to work. I find the oil works a little bit faster. Smoking I don't like to do just because I don't like the smell in the house. But since last November, I've had to smoke because I was running running low on uh, material to make oil with. So I thought, just in case I run out, 
I'd better slow down on the oil and, and smoke. So I, you don't use near nearly as much when you're smoking. So uh, hopefully when this season is over with and I have my crop, I will be able to make more oil and just stick with that. Ellen, have you ever thought of maybe cranking up your dosage to two, three times a day to see what happens? I have, and I haven't, mostly because I just don't want to be stoned. I know that that sounds silly, but uh, and maybe some at some point I may do that. But but when this works, it works very very well. Just sometimes you'll get a, a, a and this is this is with people who take medication as well. Um, you'll get a breakthrough headache no matter what. It's just it's almost like it has to happen, and uh, that occasionally does happen to me too. But I don't take nearly as much migraine medication as I used to. I'm wondering what would happen if you uh, just took CBD in the daytime. Yeah, I was thinking I've, of that, too. I've tried that. Oh, I've you used, have? And okay. Yeah. And, and it probably helps, but it doesn't seem to do as much as, mm. as the oil does. When I was in San Francisco, I picked up a couple of a CBD vape pen and some CBD tinctures and different things like that, which are awful. Tinctures in alcohol are horrible to take. They sting your tongue. Mm. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think, and I think that the CBD, the vape pen that I bought, the CBD vape pen seemed to do more strangely for my arthritis. Well, that's what I was else. thinking of, actually, was yeah. your arthritis. Yeah, and uh, it does seem to work quite well for that. And I probably have the vape pen that I have. It had quite a bit of oil in it, so I've got a few months probably left in that. And you said initially that your, as a result of taking the oil, you got rid of your IBS. Yeah, almost. It was, you know, a month or so later, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I haven't been sick. I haven't had to run to the bathroom, you know, after dinner. You know, I haven't had to... You know, be careful what I eat for lunch when I'm in town, and uh, and that was a, that was a real big thing for me. That was quite important. I'm, I'm a very very thin person, so and I, actually right now I'm down. I had the flu a couple of times this winter. I'm 94 pounds, which is pretty scary at five five. Yeah. But uh, anything I can do to keep food and calories inside my body is a is a good thing. So, mm-hmm. but cannabis cannabis doesn't make me hungry. I'm the only person I've met. That says that, but I've read articles that say some women don't seem to get that effect. I didn't either. Okay, so yeah, that's two people now. No, I can eat. I don't feel nauseous after I eat like I did before, but I don't get hungry. And that was another thing that the stroke took away was my that you know when your your tummy growls and you're hungry. I don't get that anymore. Sometimes I'll smell something and think, oh, that smells good. I could eat, but I don't get hungry. Do you ever go into the chat rooms that you were into earlier when you were talking about uh, being getting your new computer and going into the chat rooms? Do you ever go into them and talk about uh, cannabis to others who have uh, similar issues to you? We have. Um, now, the, the site isn't very active anymore, but uh, we do have um, files, and uh, I can't remember what it is they call them. They're just files and files and files of conversations, questions and answers from patient to patient. And uh, so, and there's a fair bit of information on that. I've actually gotten in, involved. A, a friend of mine, the fellow that ran that website, he, he and I became friends. And I actually worked for the website as a moderator for a few years. And uh, he has started, or we have started, I guess, a website for cannabis patients that we're hoping, once we get it out of beta, that uh, might 
serve the same purpose as uh, as the neurological website did. It was with Harvard University, and actually we have one of the doctors from Harvard University who's interested in our site, and he's thinking that he will be coming not really to work with us, but they want to, they don't, because like all doctors, they don't know much, mm-hmm. and he thinks it would be good for MGH to uh, be able at least to go in and view what the what the people and the patients are saying, the reactions and, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, if we have support from, from Harvard and Massachusetts General Hospital, I think that it will be good, you know, be good for our patients and good for the whole world, really, I guess, as far as information goes. It was the one thing I found when I started this. There was no one place you could go where you could find information. You know, I was lucky to find uh, the Facebook page that Corey and Janet Sweeney were posting on so I could watch what they were being asked and the answers that they were giving. But um, if you happen to get lucky and find an article on it, there was that. But there was no one place that all that stuff was saved. There was no one place where all the research was saved. So that's what we hope to do. And the site is, if anybody wants to look it up, it's canatalks, C-A-N-N-A-T-A-L-K-S dot com. And uh, it's a very simple procedure to register. And there's not a lot on the site now. There's a lot of articles and stuff like that. But our, uh, our chat room, it's probably about two weeks away from going. I want to ask you what the doctors feel about your progress over the last number of years. Um, they're all quite amazed um sadly my neurologist moved to bc he's probably out there with you fellas but uh so i don't know who my neurologist is now um my last angiogram was they moved i guess now i'm supposed to get them every three years so my last angiogram was would have been three years ago last summer and they sent me a notice to get another one and i've been doing research on what angiograms are as well and they're not the healthiest things, thing for anybody to have. So uh, I had I've decided not to go. Um, and that sounds shocking, but it's not because it's it's the same three choices that I would have had if I'd wanted to do something about the coils shifting. Mm-hmm. Um, they'll do surgery. They'll you know do something else, or we'll leave it alone. And I've I've decided. I'll just leave it alone. In a few years, I'll go back and have have the one that's growing checked. But uh, but I'm not willing to to go through any kind of surgery or anything like that at this point. From from the research that I've done, using the can- cannabis will strengthen the walls of my arteries, which is is a good thing. And uh, there, and there's nothing. There's no treatment. Like they can't give me if they've given me anti-seizure drugs. They've given me anti-anxiety drugs because they thought I was going to be anxious, not because I was anxious. They just said, "Here, take these, just in case, just in case," because everybody else gets anxious or depressed, and they can't. They they're still waiting for the depression to set in. <laughs> well, get on that, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I'm putting that off until I need it. You know, someday until I, I need, need it. Need a rest, then I'll then I'll fall into a depression. <laughs> but, oh, I love uh, your attitude, Ellen. Just love it. Rather than get depressed, I just get kind of frustrated and a little bit pissy at the world. You know, like ah, I want to do this. You know, I'm mad that I can't. You know, wash all the walls on one day, and you know that kind of stuff. I've, I've turned into a bit of a fragile thing. I'm supposed to keep my blood pressure down and my heart rate down. Like I'll, I'll never run a marathon, but then again, I've never wanted to run a marathon, so that's lucky. But 
Alan, given how close you were to death, do you ever think of death? Um, not with any fear anymore. No. No, it's uh, everybody does it. Uh, a lot of people have gone before me and no one's come back to complain. So it must <laughs> be okay. Yeah, I'm reminded of an interview we did uh, earlier this week with um, Callie Blackwell, whose 14-year-old son was taken to hospital. Yes, hospice. I'd, lis- I'd listen to that. That was a wonderful show. An amazing kid and an amazing mother. Yeah, and uh, he wasn't afraid of death. He said uh, it's calming. Yeah, and it, it kind of is. I mean, I don't, I look, uh, I can't say, I don't look forward to, de- to death, but I don't fear death. I fear the dying. I fear being in pain or not being able to communicate or being alone, that kind of thing, the process. But as far as the death itself goes, no, it's not not scary at all anymore. I've, apparently, I did die after the stroke um, for, you know, briefly. So, you know, oh. I've done that. So, so this is your second life. This is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Ellen, it was uh, wonderful to talk to you. Anything you want to say in conclusion? Not that I can think of. It's just for people who who are interested in, in trying cannabis and think that it might help them, see, seek out people who know. Seek out other patients. Your doctors, sadly, at this point, aren't able to answer any questions for you. So people like Corey, you know, any of the provincial groups, and they're out there. There are a lot of knowledgeable people. And... Uh, you know, give it a go. See if it helps. It's not going to hurt you if it doesn't help you. Ellen, it was great to talk to you. I love your attitude. It's fantastic. Thank you, Ian. It was nice to be here. And thanks, Corey. Thank you, Ellen, for for coming on and uh, doing your thing and letting people know how you're doing and, and uh, sharing your story. Thank you. I've been enjoying your show, so keep it up. Thank you. Okay. And we apologize for the hiss on the line. It had nothing to do with our recording equipment. It was a Skype issue. That's it. Another edition of Cannabis Health Radio. Wherever you are in the world, thanks very much for listening. You've been listening to the Cannabis Health Radio podcast. Visit our website, CannabisHealthRadio.com, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. How do cannabis CEOs balance growth and optimization strategies? What is THCO, Delta 10, and CBNA, and why should you care about these minor cannabinoids? And why isn't the endocannabinoid system covered in medical school? Most people think they're up to date in trends in the cannabis industry, but they're about six weeks behind. Learn about what is truly next in the cannabis space by joining myself, Brian Fields, and Kellen Finney every week on the Dime Podcast and, of course, on PodConnects.